Another one of our sponsors I'm excited to tell you about is actually another podcast. It's called People of Product. And it's really about kind of highlighting the way people come together in innovative ways and create all the digital products that seem to be in every part of our lives. And what I think I like the most is that these guys are speaking from experience. You know, we had George Brooks on our show. And besides that, he's like a really genuine human being, just super knowledgeable at creating way more effective teams to get this kind of stuff done. And I really can't recommend it enough. You can find them anywhere that you get your podcasts and I recommend you checking out People of Product. So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called PillowCube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow. That's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. Default to price or we default to brand, and we know that's not the smartest way to do things. And he said, by you laying out where you guys all fit, the strengths and weaknesses, you've really helped us understand the risk, you've helped us understand the value, you've helped us understand how to buy. And I said, that, that's, that's the best I've got. If you want to speak tech, I've got techs behind me, I've got techs on the phone, I've got some of the best tech engineers in the world to go into the bits and bytes and the design and layouts and architecture. But at the end of the day, this is a business decision, and, and you've got to understand how to, how to make the business decision. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Kent Billingsley. Kent, as I was saying before we started, I was excited about this show. I really, I really like what your book is about. I, I'm there's so many things I want to talk about today. To begin with, why don't you give people a little bit of the background of EDS, working with Mark Cuban, and now all these all these entrepreneurs you've helped? Yeah. So the core amount of my work, or the, the I would say the DNA of my work, started back uh, 25 years ago inside a, a, a large corporation called EDS. It was run by Ross Perot at the time, and or actually earlier, and then General Motors bought him out. But I got tasked with forming teams and going back inside the strategic business units and helping them understand how to optimize, not, not just grow, not just achieve incremental growth or profits, but actually how to optimize, which meant how could they produce more uh, sales, revenue, profits using the resources they had? How could they create more consistency, more profitability, become more dominant because they were taking on a lot of competitors? And I've been, I was doing that internally. That helped me get promoted, rise through the ranks up to the executive level, help run Asia. And then uh, I came back in uh, 2000. I used to live in Hong Kong. And I came back in 2000, started out a software company, applied everything I'd learned, and we helped scale that out. And and really, you have a lot of success with it. And I could go into the numbers about what we did, but eventually it was bought by IBM. And I actually have never worked with Mark. Every time Mark's asked me to work with him, I've moved to another country or another state. And so we actually never worked together, but we had been friends uh, for almost 40 years. 
and he stayed in contact with the work I've done and the things I've I've done. And then back in around 2002, 2003, I was up in the private suites with him watching his uh, Mavericks basketball team. And we were talking about just business and things. And and he was saying, well, Kent, what are you doing now that you've, you know, you've left this software firm, you, get, you had a great run. Are you retired? What are you doing? I said, well, I'm actually helping CEOs and friends of running businesses and, and looking at their companies to see how I can help them. And, and, and I told Mark, I said, I'm seeing a trend, a, a pattern that's disturbing. And that is that every company I go into is really good at what they do. They, they, they offer tremendous services and products. They're passionate about they, what they do. And, and I just love that. But the problem is they're terrible at making money doing it. They're, they're just absolutely pathetic at, at, at turning the value, the worth of their products and services into dollars. They're great at trading <laughs> their products and services and hours for dollars, but they're not great at leveraging the value and the true worth. And I, and I said, it's really disturbing because that's not allowing companies to create the wealth that they could and should to give back to communities, to create more jobs, to make the world a better place through R&D. And I said, it's frustrating. I said, I'm, I'm really going to work on that. And I want to put together a book someday. And after I get enough case studies, and he said, I agree with you. When, when you write the book, uh, I'll read it. And, and then if I like it, I'll, I'll do the foreword for you. And, and, and that was 16, 17 years, gosh, maybe 18 years ago. And uh, so it didn't take me 18 years to write the book. Like he says in the forward, he kind of jabs him at me a little bit, but it took me 18 years to prove that these concepts that we can scale against assets to produce more sales revenue and profits without spending more money, I've now been proving that in thousands of companies around the world from pure startups, pre-revenue up to billion dollar organizations. A few months back, I got him one of the, the third pass of the manuscript. He loved it. He wrote the forward. And so now off and running, trying to get the message out to a lot more people. So uh, that's a little bit about the background. Yeah. Um, well, congratulations on writing a good enough book. That you're, oh, thank you. <laughs> that you're now billionaire groomsman from your wedding <laughs> is willing to do that. I, I liked I liked your comment. I was listening to one of your other videos and you're like, well, when the Grizzly Free Wedding becomes a billionaire, you feel like you haven't accomplished anything. Oh my yeah, and 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 self-made. And and I and I had worked for Ross Perot, who also was an entrepreneur that became a billionaire through selling to General Motors. And so yeah, and and it's you know, it's interesting, Jess. It's not about the money, it's about giving back. It's about it's about more than covering your expenses and and paying making payroll and all those other things. But are you creating enough wealth that you can really give back and share and do things for the community and help out, especially like times right now? And so, yeah, but it, it's also a, a hurdle when your friends are multimillionaires and billionaires. <laughs> You've got more work to do. Well, you know, it's funny. It is, it is interesting how like once you start making enough money, more money doesn't doesn't it doesn't have that much of an effect on like your family's happiness and like you maybe get to have more fun or you know like we've had the entrepreneurial roller coaster of way up, way down, way up, way down, you know, and and been partners. We've owned some companies with a couple of different billionaires and like I thought it was the coolest thing ever when he took me on a private jet to his twenty million dollar yacht and we had the boardroom meeting on the yacht, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I thought I was a rock star, you know, what I mean? like I, I, I thought I was so cool. 
and you're right. Like that stuff really doesn't matter. You know, like when you think about when you, I don't know, I'm a, I'm a churchy guy, you know, when you look at like the real long-term, that stuff doesn't matter. Right. Right. And at the same time for the right people, I think it's a great sport. You know, I look at, I look at Warren Buffett and Bill Gates and how they've been getting all these billionaires to sign the giving pledge to give at least half their money away. And a bunch of people are signing to give it all away. You know, like that's great. That's a great thing. Like get have people become billionaires and then give, give the money back to society and help people. Like that sounds like a really fun sport, you know? And I, I I would like to try for it, you know, and I figure as long as I don't ruin my family or, or lose my integrity on the way, you know, like, I don't know. I think about that, like 20 years ago, I heard some saying about like goals or stars to shoot for instead of sticks to beat yourself with. You know, yeah. If you shoot, if you shoot for the moon, you'll probably at least clear the treetops, right? <laughs> well, let's dive into this. You know, before we started, I told you about my just obsession with more. You know, I call it more with less. You call it more from less. I I'm really excited to talk about systems and and can we start with how you define the difference between scaling from just adding? Yeah, and uh, the pattern I was seeing also to put it into simple phrases in, in the corporations and then in businesses has been, the mantra has been more, more for more, spend, spend money to make money. And, and, and that's kind of a paradigm and a model from last century that, that people are still following today. A lot of business leaders and owners are thinking, well, I've, I've just got to spend money to make money. And then if I make anything over that, that's really great. And that's just really the opposite of everything I, I want people to understand. I want you to understand that you don't have to spend money to make money. And, and, and so it's been interesting in the last year, people have pivoted from more to more to a perverse view of more from less. And now that we've gone into these tough times, they, they cut staff, they cut budgets, they grind employees, they, they burn out a vendor relationships. Now they've flipped over to a different way of doing things, more from less, but in a perverse way. What I want leaders and employees and people around the world to understand is in a business, you can actually create more from less if you learn the principles of scaling against an asset. And this is really the difference between growing a business and, and scaling revenue. And, and what I mean by that is when we're growing a business, we're, we're adding clients, adding customers, adding products and services, adding locations, uh, adding employees and all kinds of things. We're, we're adding all these good things, but maybe adding bad things. We're adding more infrastructure, more cost, more headaches, more toxicity. And so it kind of nets out that is the business really that much better? My concept of, of more from less or what I call revenue growth is when we scale against an asset such as a client. When we can understand how do we generate more business from an existing client than spend the 10X to go get the next one, we've saved a lot of money. That's pure profit that all of a sudden now helps create wealth. And so my point to a lot of companies today is you don't need a lot more clients. You need the right clients, maybe fewer clients, and you need to retain them longer so that you're not burning and turning because 67 to 80% of sales and marketing expense today is a complete waste of time, money, and resources. That's pure profit that goes away forever that maybe not only didn't build your brand, it actually hurt your brand. And so not only are you not creating wealth, you're actually destroying wealth in your business. So when we can look at our assets, our, our clients, our contracts, our products, our services, we look at these as assets and say, each year, are they generating more revenue, more sales, revenue, and profits, or are we just adding more of those things to try to make the company bigger? And, 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 and so my whole premise is that the, the counterintuitive or unique way of looking at more from less is scaling your revenues against an asset. Does it produce more? And I'll give you a quick example of that. 
in so many cases, companies say, hey, you know, if I'm if I'm a million or I'm 10 million or I'm 50 million and I have X number of salespeople, 10, to double that number, I need to add 10 more salespeople. Well, every time you add a salesperson, you add eight categories of cost, or another way to say it, eight ways to eat through profits and your wealth. But if we can learn how to scale, if we can help an individual salesperson create an environment where they can double and triple their revenues, we just saved all those eight categories of cost times X. So, and, and in your mind, what are those eight categories? Yeah, and, and I talk uh, through it in, in the book because it's one of the great unknowns, but it's the cost of attraction, it's the cost of recruiting, it's the cost of onboarding, it's the management cost, it's the infrastructure cost, it's the uh, salary, it's the commissions, it's the sales support. And so I just go through this litany of those are all additional things. And so what's fascinating is I've got several stories in the book of where someone had like a $750,000 quota we helped them as a leadership team sell 13 and a half million. That, that was a dozen salespeople I didn't need. That was, that was hundreds of sales cycles we didn't have to go through. The proposal costs alone that we saved is off the charts. That's all hey, let's, your profit that, we can, that, that now creates wealth inside the business. You know, I'm, I'm really interested to dive into this story more. I feel like, you know, a couple of my, you know, maybe bigger sales wins in my life. I had a consulting firm client that was going to spend $60,000 and, you know, dug in with them, kind of like earn that trusted advisor status. And they came back to me with a $2.8 million order. You know, in our, in our last fund, I had a client started the conversation for a hundred grand. They put it in. We, we really just did that going the extra mile, doing stuff that we weren't required to do. And they came back to us with 8 million, you know, and it, it's, it's dramatic when those things happen inside of, you know, if you're a smaller organization, right? So can you give us a little more background on this story? Yeah. And and I'll give you some statistics to back this up because it's actually frightening or scary if you run a business that eight out of 10 salespeople never cover their costs, but, but even worse in complex sales and the kind of sales you were talking about B2B and B2G's type sales 98% of all contracts, when they're finally negotiated, get smaller, weaker, and lower margin. When when just the opposite should occur, that should be the time when the buyer says, I I love you guys. I'm buying into your value proposition. I want to buy more. I want to invest in this. I really want to make it work. But just the opposite happens. What's fascinating, the reason for that is, is not necessarily poor salespeople or all that. We haven't created the right demand. And and then we end up leaders and salespeople and sales teams, and they're all guilty of it. They end up giving things away. They end up giving up margins. They end up lowering their prices. They end up doing things that in the end, they're actually buying the business. They're not winning the business and the deals are weaker and smaller and it costs them uh, money inside their company or profits that they never gain, which again is wealth that, that, that is never realized. And, and, and it is an absolute tragedy. And that's why my phone rings most of the time is to come in and fix or optimize or re-architect the sales organization, structure, strategy, process, tools, technology, comp, culture, all those kinds of things. And, and I'll come in and I'll, I'll analyze or do an MRI and, and, and do a deep dive and then come back and say, you know what, the, the root cause is not in your sales organization. It, it's in your sales model. It's in who you're targeting as clients. Uh, it's back in, in your leadership. It's back in your culture. There, there are broader things, more systemic things that set up sales for failure, not success. I love it. Well, let's let's go through this story, this $750,000 quota to $13 yeah. million. Yeah, yeah. 
So uh, software company, and this is what I was actually helping run. So I was I was in there as as a, as an executive helping run this, and we were at the last day of the quarter, and I think uh, the organization, the sales organization, we only had about two or three hundred thousand in the books at that point, and. Everyone's now learned in software sales, you don't buy till the last day. <laughs> you work the vendors over and you make them squeal at the last day. And, and we were we were really nervous. This was a public software company. You know, in private companies, you could play games, you move numbers around, you could say anything you want. But in the public companies, you have to report to the analysts, you have to tell them the real revenue numbers and 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 all that. What happened was this particular salesperson was in an account and we were working through some negotiations and had my CEO get on the phone and then, and then the COO and we were talking through things. And it was the classic case of kind of being myopic to say, well, you know what, there, there's a good piece of business here. We could probably get this signed today and, and maybe get it up to a million dollars. But as we explored with the salesperson about the account, we asked the person, how many, how many divisions does this organization have? And they said, oh, maybe 11, 12, 13. And our comment was, well, have we even discussed doing an enterprise-wide license? Why are, why are we just talking to the division? And, and yeah, it was the classic case. Well, that's where we could get the deal right now. And, and, and you know, you go for what you can get. And, and we started to strategize through it. And we asked the salesperson, he was in their offices. We said, well, go get the CEO. Let's get on the horn and see if we can just structure something together. We got on the phone and, and talked through it, and we just ran the numbers to say, you know, over over the years of time, this is going to uh, be thirty to forty million dollars. If we could talk through and package something up in the you know twelve to fifteen million, you can buy a site wide enterprise license and get it all now, and we could roll it out now. So not only do you save a lot of money, but the time of implementation and the time to market will dramatically impact that your payback could be very quick. And so on the fly, we built a much stronger, compelling value proposition. They bought off on. It worked for us. Everybody won. And, and, and I just have to share with you, the salesperson got a commission check for $864,000. Now, yeah, awesome. now that freaks out people because that salesperson that year, and I had several others that made over a million dollars in commissions and salary. That that really makes a lot of CEOs, their heads explode, especially the corporation. Because their their attitude is well, we never want to pay somebody that much. And my attitude is yes, you do. And 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 there are so many reasons why. First of all, when I when you pay for performance, never never are you reward for performance. Don't pay for work. That's a big mistake that most companies make. But if you reward for performance, you get that kind of performance from people on your team and others out there. I I had I had the top salespeople and the different competitors want to come work for me because they knew the system they would be operating in and they knew the potential upside without the governors, without the caps, without the games. They knew if they came over and, and performed and were part of a team construct and worked inside our value proposition, uh, they could earn amazing kinds of numbers. And so running a software company in an industry that typically has 40 to 50% turnover every year, for three years, I had zero unplanned turnover. And what do you attribute that to? It, it's all about the system. It, it, it's all about creating the environment that that all pieces and parts fit together. And that's kind of the roadmap that I, I want people to learn is that you, you don't just go to market with a great product or service and try and turn it into money. It's everything about your system. It's, it's how you target, how you package, how you message, how you build your teams with talent, how you put the right compensation systems in. It, you really have to look at things holistically and you have to look at things as an integrated system. And, and that was the DNA I picked up on 25 years ago, optimizing organizations, that your, 
your performance, and at the end of the day, performance is how you, your, your sales, your revenue, and your profits is only as good as the weakest part of your system. And, and, and most leaders don't look at their business as a system. They look at it as a delivery mechanism of their products and services. They, they look at it the wrong way. So let, let's dive into this. Let's do some more specifics about this, you know, creating the kind, you know, I got my first sales job when I was 15. You know, uh-huh. I feel like I've been a sales guy for 25 years, even as yeah. the chairman of our investment company now, our real estate investment company, I just feel like I'm top salesman. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, I've been around a lot of prima donnas. I've been, you know, I've seen a lot of things, especially in my younger days and on a lot of other people's sales teams, right? So give us a couple of specifics of what, what that looked like with that team that, that had you have, you know, zero unplanned exits. Yeah. And that's, that's when I'd come back from Hong Kong and I'd been a chief marketing officer, chief strategy officer of a billion dollar technology services company. And that's where I said, you know what, I'm going to apply everything I know to this, this software startup business but I'm going to apply the principles of more from less. And in other words, I wasn't trying to build large teams. We weren't trying to work every deal. We weren't chasing everything. We were very strategic, very effective about where do we target? What's our message? How do we build value problems? Yeah, like what's, what's an example in that one is like quit just calling everybody and only call CTOs or what was, what did that look like? Yeah. So in, in targeting is actually defining who in, in B2B is defining who exactly in the corporation are you going after? What is the demographic? What is their psychographic? And then what are their characteristics? Because one of the things that's most important, and and this is, I I was doing a live event yesterday and I asked the audience, I said, how many of you have that perfect client? How many of you have that, that, that customer that you love? They, they, they pay on time. They don't beat you up on price. They handle their responsibilities and they stay with you through thick and thin. And everybody raised their hand. I said, how many of you have a portfolio filled with those kinds of people? Nobody raised their hand. And I asked the audience, well, why? What? Why? If, if they're so good and you love those kinds of clients, why isn't your portfolio filled with them? And somebody said, well, we can't always get that kind. And I said, well, actually, in most cases, your business isn't designed to attract that kind and filter out those you don't want. And and, and so, so back let's, to answering your let, question in the model. Yeah, oh, go ahead. ahead. Yeah. Uh-huh. So who, who was that for you guys at that business? Yeah. So we were at that point in time, we were after what are called CLAX, ILAX. These were telecommunications type companies of a certain size and then targeting the certain individuals within that uh, organization. And yeah. So like, who were you guys looking for? Was it a chief investment officer, you know, a CIO, chief information officer, a CTO or somebody different? Yeah. and, And the role could switch a little bit. And that's where it's so challenging today is the title and the roles don't always mix. But in many cases, it was the CTO or chief operations officer, and then connected to the uh, CEO. The key here was to find that that individual, that up and comer, that was either somewhere in the organization or connected into this buying process, that we could uh, work with them to mutually develop the value proposition. And and I, I've rebuilt probably a thousand sales organizations today. I've helped teams learn how to compete and win billion dollar contracts. The key to all of it is finding that influencer and mutually developing a value proposition that's compelling. When you can do that, your win rates are going to be, and I'll just, I got to share with you with this software company, public software company, over three years, our win rates were 96%. We, we won 48 out of 50 major contracts against the big companies of CA, Tivoli, HP, Harris, IM, IBM, those kinds of companies. And, and so, that only works with every part of your system operating and being designed for success. Yeah. You know, I think about that. I used to work for a consulting firm that I love called the Arbinger Institute. And, you know, I got, you know, for us, the the prize was who, who has the most staff, 
Do you know what I mean? Like, because they can buy the most training. This is who you're looking for, right? So giant military contracts. I mean, as far as businesses, like yeah. Walmart was the holy grail, right? 2.1 million employees. Like this is, this is the holy grail, right? And so in my case, I had my SDR reach out with this really great book that not everybody knows about and just offer a copy of the book for free, no strings attached, you know, and then just followed up with the head of HR globally, you know, got him to, so we did we alternated phone, email, phone, email, phone, email to just try and get a yes or a no. And eventually we got a yes, right? So the SDR introduces me. I, I then start saying, hey, so glad, happy to send you the book. Would love to check and see what you think of it. No pressure, no sale. And I called him every two to three weeks for probably four to five months before he ever picked the book up. And it was always like, oh, shoot, no, it didn't start yet. Yeah. I'll, I'll have to work on that. And, and just like by not being, by being like persistent, but not a pest of like, oh yeah, no problem. When, when would be a good time? You know, should I give you another couple of weeks? What's good for you? Oh, well, actually I'm traveling. How about three weeks? You know, and he would never do it. And I think he just felt guilty after a while. Right. Yeah. And, and then the book was actually pretty excellent and, and, you know, it was a good enough hook yeah. that he was like, oh man, this is great. So then he actually had real conversations, invites me out to Bentonville and I quit the business and started my own company instead of ever completing that sale for them. Uh -huh. But, but you know, that was a model that worked for us. So for you guys with, with what you were doing, how did you, you've targeted the right person. What did that look like? You building this, you know, mutually beneficial way. How were you getting in the door to then, to then build that? Yeah. When I, when I first came back from Hong Kong and, and joined on with the company, about 90% of the revenue was coming from direct sales, the sales organization with a couple of people. Over time, and I, and, I, and I talk about how to do this in the book, is worked really hard to build strategic relationships with the major integrators. So this was IBM, Accenture, and Cisco. And, 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 I, and it was incredibly hard work, and, and it took about 18 months to crack into Cisco. And I'll never forget the, the regional VP one time, he told me, he goes, Kent, you want us to sell your stuff? We have 3,000 products that my salespeople don't even understand, and you want us to take on one more. And I said, and I said, yeah, and let me walk you through the value proposition. The value proposition is if you'll open the door, we'll convert the relationship. I don't want to say close the deal. I don't like that. But I said, we'll convert the relationship. So if you'll just open the door, because you're already in there, we'll, we'll do the heavy lifting on the sales side. I'll provide the sales support. I'll provide the engineers. We'll do all the work if you'll open the door. And, and, they, and they did it one time and we were really successful. And then I, I got the, the VP of sales to do a conference call with the whole, whole sales force. And I had that salesperson that got credit for the deal talk through what it was like to work with my company and how much he loved it. And, and the doors blew open. <laughs> now all of a sudden, you know, a thousand Cisco salespeople were saying, wow, let's bring these guys in here. Their product rocks. They rock. It, we sit back and watch and then we get paid to do it. <laughs> That's great. I love it. And, and, and the key there in all that is, and, and what, I, what I take into companies is it, at the end of the day, get away from classic old school horrific selling that's based on product price and personality get, get rid of that stuff build value propositions based on a business relationship how are you going to make their company better make their work better make their environment better there, there's so much out there today that, that's taught the old school and I'm like you know my attitude is build a business relationship be successful and have the personal relationship as a byproduct or on the side but don't lead with that and and so it's been interesting to watch salespeople that have been doing this 20, 30 years that have converted over to lead with solving business problems and, and let and let the personal relationship develop on its own and the success they're having. I, I mean, I've made 
a lot of people that I talk about in the book, I've made a millionaires in sales because they, they've changed their paradigm of everything that we used to be taught and told and sold. Well, it's funny because, you know, there's so many, so many people listening today have heard that advice, right? They've, they've heard people say that, but then when you actually go into businesses, what you find is sales reps trained, really well-trained at selling features and benefits and not very well-trained at understanding how my client makes money and how what we're selling makes their life easier, makes them more money. But, you know, like, there, there, there's so few people who really bring that entrepreneurial mindset that you talk about to a sales meeting going like, Hey, forget about me making my commission for now. Like, let's make you more money or let's make your, let's make your job less frustrating. Right. You know, I sold a lot of consulting on, Hey, you know how like the worst part of your day is all those staff who won't take personal responsibility and come dump all their problems on you and whine about everyone else uh-huh. and don't and won't look in the mirror at their own blind spots. Yeah. Right? You don't even have to come to the meeting. We'll work we'll we'll do that for you. Do it for you. Yeah. <laughs> right? So to me it's funny how like the 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 really great advice, it sounds like the advice you've already received a thousand times, but sometimes it's just like that that context of what it means, right? Like nobody sells something thinking I don't add value. Like everybody thinks they add value, right? But this like, have I really thought through not just my customer, but my customer's customer, right? Like if I could teach my customer how to make his customer even happier, I just made this guy, I just made this guy look like a genius and probably made him a million bucks, right? Well, it's really easy for him to pick us next time the budget review comes around again, right? Yeah. Like you talk about these customers that you retain, like make a customer's problem your problem and they do that, you know? I feel like one of like the biggest compliments I ever received, that that big giant army contract I was telling you about, the 60 grand to 2.8 million. Yeah. The, the colonel, no, the lieutenant, lieutenant colonel on that team, I had offered to buy my own plane tickets to fly to DC to help them write up the paperwork for an internal document that had nothing to do with us. Yeah. And like, he's like, he kind of laughed. And he's like, I think we got it. And he's like, Jess, I think you might care about our problem more than we do. And I was like, yes, this is, this is what I'm hoping for. Right. And, and I don't want to interrupt you, Jess, but you said a couple of things I want to unpack there. First of all, they're salespeople. They think like salespeople and their goal is the sale. They have the wrong goal. And, 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 and when they come back from the meeting, how was the meeting? It was always great. The sales call was always great. And I go, okay, well, that's really wonderful. That's not a measurement. And I, and I don't know how to quantify that. Explain to me their business problem. Wh- where are they challenged? Where's the flaw in their model that they can't generate the revenue or sales or whatever that they need to? Because in almost all cases, the, the intervention or the solution should impact top line or bottom line or both. And, and if you can't articulate that to me after you've come back from a meeting, not a sales call, then you didn't have a good meeting and, and you had a sales mindset and, and you didn't come through the door as a business person. You came through the door as a salesperson who no, no one actually wants to meet or talk to. So, so you're already set up for failure. So I actually spend a lot of time and my team spends time deprogramming salespeople because they talk, think and speak like salespeople, which is just the opposite. I was doing an event. I was speaking in Atlantic City, 100 tech CEOs in the room. And I asked, how many of you have salespeople or hiring salespeople? Every hand went up. And I asked them, how many of you want a salesperson calling on you? Not a hand went up. And I said, there's your problem. You're, you're investing in a resource, a very expensive resource with eight categories of cost that nobody wants. And, and, then, I, and then I took it from there. I, ha- I had their attention. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And I talked to that. That, and here's the other problem is, and, and this is what, if I can get a, a, a huge message out to your audience, I want them to learn is, 
Thinking in terms of sales and marketing is, is a best practice from the 1960s. Today, you have to think in terms of creating demand and using all parts of your enterprise to do that. And then you have to think of converting demand as fast as possible and using all parts of your enterprise to leverage that. You, you've got to throw away so many old paradigms and models of spend more to make more, sales and marketing, sales is a numbers game, make more sales calls. I mean, just there's so much garbage that's out there it, it, it might make your business bigger, maybe a little better, but it will never create business wealth, maximizing your sales revenue and profits using the fewest resources necessary. Well, let's do this. Let's run through a story of one of your clients who you helped with their demand gen, you know, not demand capture, but demand generation. What, what's it, you know, can you give us an example? Yeah. Do you want to know on from the lead generation or conversion, converting contracts or give me a little Let, more? Let's start with lead gen. Yeah. So I worked with, and I have to be careful. I'm under so many NDAs. I have to be careful who I talk to, but there was a, a company I can say in the, um, no, I don't even want to give the space. <laughs> anyway, they had, a, I helped them build out their marketing department and they were, they were doing just, all. Just the, give us an industry, like a general industry. Uh, telecommunications. Okay. And, and, and they were, they were doing all the classic things. They were, they were living what I call the, the digital activities, right? SEO, uh, social, social media, you know, on all the platforms, they, they were doing everything they're told to do. And they're doing and they're getting all the activities that they're paying for, <laughs> but they weren't getting the results. And so I, I said, there's really three ways to generate activities. You can go digital, you can go traditional, which is like advertising, or you can do what I call physical demand creation, which is where you give speeches, workshops, seminars, all those kinds of things where one of your experts is out there on, on, in front. And, and you're leading with your expertise, not pushing your products and services. And, and so I talked him into holding an event. And I said, we're going to hold a CEO event. And we're going to talk about one of your new services. And so it was interesting. I, I hate to talk about myself, but we couldn't find a speaker for the event. We couldn't find an expert that came in that could, that, that could, that could make the topic not boring. And, and so I said, I've been in tech 35 years. You know what? I'll do it. I'll, I'll be your speaker. And I'm going to run it as a workshop. Well, we got, I think, I'm trying to remember now, 45 to 60 CEOs in the room, and we generated about 15 to 20 qualified leads for this new service, which was the leads that they would take them three to six months to generate, overspending social media, digital advertising, all the other stuff. I mean, the numbers were just ridiculous. We generated so many quality leads, the sales force couldn't follow up on them all. Love it. Yeah. That's how things should be done. That's how you should understand well, think about the, creating demand. Think about today. the layers there, right? The generosity to begin with of, you know, show up and help instead of show up and push, right? The the authority, you know, you read books like Robert Cialdini's book about influence and you start seeing like all the authority and credibility opportunities. You know, people are trying to make decisions quick. And yeah. if someone else appears to have authority and credibility and, and the people whose opinions you value, value that person's opinion, it's a real shortcut. You know, it's a real quick shortcut, right? So have you applied that in other industries as well? You, using that model, yes. And 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 any company that, an and organization, I just have to share with, I've worked with churches, I've worked with religious organizations, institutions, state and local governments. It's fascinating. I've had the FBI at my, one of my seminars, not, not because I did anything wrong. <laughs> they just, they wanted to hear my message about how to, how to, can they be more successful adding more value and get more funding? Because a lot of the government institutions at different administrations have to go fight for money. Others times they don't, but 
So yeah, any, any organization that has to attract clients, has to create demand or has to convert that demand needs to follow th- this kind of model. And, and, and they need to understand and lead with value. And, and value comes from back in one of the chapters of my book, I talk about the fundamental marketplace problem. And, and every industry and every individual has things they either want or they're not getting from the industry or the service or the product. You have to go back as a business leader and you have to look at, at the space you're in in the industry and you have to understand how are clients, how are prospects, how are buyers being underserved? How are they not being satiated with what's available today? And then how can we offer that in a unique model and make money doing it? And it's back in that DNA right there that it, it sounds so simple, but I actually go back and recalibrate that in literally every company I walk in. And, 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 and that's what I call being revenue ready. And when they go back and they do that and they really look at it and how they frame the problem, in, 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 and I talk through four different pizza models, pizza company models of how they all compete and, and are successful in that, in that completely saturated space. But, but you've got to go back and do that. And then that's what sets in motion how you go about creating demand unique to your business so that you can get people to come to you and know why they come to you versus someone else. That's great. Well, give, let's give people a bit of a preview of the, the other elements of your map. Yeah. And so, as I said earlier, that, that I typically get the call because something is broken around sales or, or, or growth or revenues or profits. I typically get the call to come in and fix the sales organization, fix the salespeople, rewire, re-architect the marketing models and all that. And as I shared with you that in almost all cases, that's not where the root cause is. The root cause is somewhere earlier or somewhere else in the organization. The, the, the secret today, if I can say that, and I hate to even use that word because it's been hijacked, but the secret today is there's no longer this golden key to unlock the wealth inside a company. In other words, I've got a superior product. I've got a great offering. I, I offer a, a tremendous service or I have a wow customer experience. Everybody has that today. So there's no golden key. It's really a combination lock of going through steps, going through a roadmap to get in position to optimize your wealth. And so it starts with what I just shared with you, what's called revenue ready. And that and that's solving a fundamental marketplace problem. That's building a unique, differentiating and compelling business model with the value proposition. And then identifying the revenue streams to be able to do that. That, that validates you've got a sustainable, successful, scalable business. You've got the foundation. It, it doesn't mean you've made a lot of money yet. It doesn't mean you've conquered a market. It just means you've validated that, that there's a market there. The next step you want to go into is what I call market ready. Now, most companies... They go from, I've got a product or a service or a model, they start selling and marketing. And, and this is why sales and marketing is almost always a spend, not an investment. And, and so the second phase, what I call market ready, is when you go through the process holistically, not, not a department, but the enterprise goes through the process, the leadership team of the targeting, your perfect client profile, the packaging of how you bundle your services to engage early and scale up the sales what are your messages? What's your value proposition? How do you articulate the differentiators that you bring to the table? And then what are the different pricing strategies that both attract and retain clients forever? So that's phase two. The phase three is then go to market. That's how you market, how you sell, how you partner, and how you manage your pipeline and your prospects. And and the final phase, if you've done all these things really well, and we're now starting to optimize, you're not just winning, you're winning a lot. Now we move into the fourth and final phase of the roadmap, 
which is called own the market. And this is where you're dominating your niche, dominating your space, dominating your segment. This is where you're creating so much demand and converting it so fast that sometimes you have competitors that are scared of you. And I want to give you a quick example because I know you said you like uh, to hear examples and stories. I, I walked into a company and they had they had about five salespeople generating about a million dollars a year. I mean, just, just a nice business. But the CEO was frustrated because I spent a lot of money. <laughs> I got a lot of time. I, I, I've now got a management layer. And it's like, it's a lot of heat and noise, not a lot of profit. And I said, yeah, you're, you're like the classic gas engines. We've got to get you to an electric engine. And, and, and so I worked with them for a while. Uh, their win rates were about 17 to 20%, which is very average, very typical. Most companies think they're 30, 40, 50% win rates. They're about half that. Working with them for a while over time. We what got what their, was the industry? Yeah, this was in mobility and development. So this was in the app space, the application development space. And so working with them for a while, we helped get them. I I led them to getting up to about an 80% conversion rate. They were winning one out of five, and we got them up to winning four out of five contracts. And more importantly than anything, and and Jess, I think your audience appreciates this, the CEO said, we're now winning eight out of 10 contracts. The contracts are bigger. We don't lower our prices, and we don't discount anymore. And, and, and now through attrition and other things, they've been at a point where they've had one or two salesperson now generating three to four, sometimes $5 million a year. That's that scaling revenue that I'm talking so, about. Yeah. That's so, so powerful because that so generates the, so much cash and wealth. Yeah. Let's, let's dive into this story. So what were some of the things, what were some of the tactical things that you did to help them go from landing one in five to four out of five? Yeah, the, the first part of it was back to the fundamental marketplace problem. What, what what problem are you really solving? And then what is your value proposition? And very few- Like what was theirs? Their value proposition was that they were, well, the original one or the way they were solving the problem was leading with technology and trying to be the cheapest with the technology solution. And we talked for a while and I, and I said, well, here's a problem. And, you know, I'm, and I've been in technology a long time. Technology on its own has no value. Technology is only used to solve a business problem. And, and I said, we need to start talking through the business problem you solve, the, the production, the performance metrics, the, the increase in, in revenue on the customer-facing app side. We need to talk through the business problems you're solving first and then design the technology behind it. Well, they started leading with that message. And, and, and they went into, this is a classic one, and, and I just, I, I couldn't love this more. They got a blind RFP, request for proposal. And, 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 and it was a major account. And the VP of sales said, we don't respond to RFPs. Our track record's pathetic. And I, and I told him, I said, I understand, but I've worked in Washington, D.C. I've worked in the Beltway. Oh, I, I lived with RFPs for several years. So I know the gig and the game. And I said, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at it and, and, and see what we think, where the holes are, explain it, and then go back to the people and help them understand and strengthen the RFP. We're going to add value to the RFP itself, and you may no bid it. And, and so the other thing that we're going to do is then we're going to go present, and you're going to lead with a business-first approach. And you're going to talk about the problems this type of organization has in their industry and how to solve it using technology, but you're not allowed to talk about yourself. And, and they were like, what? No, our presentation, we go in there, we tell them how long we've been around, who our clients are, our products and services. I go, no, forget it. Stop it. That's Vendorville. You're, you're not allowed to do a Vendorville presentation ever again. Nobody wants one. You don't want to give it and they don't want to hear it. So why? So they went through the door and there were thir- there were about 13 other competitors. They had no relationship and 13 competitors 
I mean, this is just set up for failure, right? The presentation went so well and they differentiated so much from the other competitors, the buyer was scared to make a decision. They were like, we don't think you guys can be real. And it took them a few extra months to do the due diligence to check the viability of this company, but they ended up winning this contract. And, and I, can't, I can't talk about the contracts or the names of the companies, they are still a client today, and this contract has generated millions of dollars for this company in a blind RFP with 13 competitors and no relationship to start with. I mean, and that's a hole. Who, who would do that, right? Well, the way you do that is you build value and you lead with value through the whole process. Stop selling, stop pushing your products and services, and start developing a mutual value uh, value base, a three-point value proposition with the client and build and 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 so they separated. It was so interesting. They separated themselves out just by how they were marketing and selling what they were doing versus all the other vendors. And and one, oh, and I'll, I remember this now. The VP of sales came back from the meeting, and and the prospect said, "You guys are really different. It's refreshing." Well, you know, people are constantly being preached to today: add value, add value, right. and so often they're not given an example like that. You know, I listened to what you said, and and I think about this idea of like even if they hadn't won that bid, you know, showing up, being helpful and almost like having your number one goal be their problem, not landing the account, right? Like that, it shows like a level of confidence when we can show up and be mostly worried about them getting the problem solved, whether they use us or not. Yeah. And I mean, you can't really be a salesperson or an entrepreneur without the back of your head saying, I hope they choose me. Okay. In my opinion, like that's, that's always going to be there. But like, the more we can overcome that, the more we can say like, I'll get to that later. First, let's help you. First, let's like legitimately help you. Like there's nothing in it for me. Right. Like think about the, the walls that come down about getting invited around to their side of the negotiating table to, <laughs> to help them think things through. Right. Because the, you're, when we stop sending the signals, I'm a shark. And if I have to eat you to get my commission, I'm going to. Yeah. yeah. Right. There's so people are so used to that. Right. So I got to share where that comes from, Jess, because I lived it. When, when I was hired into the technology industry, I, I didn't understand technology. So I, I'm now after some development and training over about 13 months, I'm now out in the field calling on CEOs. And the challenge I had was I couldn't speak tech. So and, and if you did, that was the curse because if you spoke tech, then the CEO would push you down to the MIS director or the CTO or something like that. I couldn't speak tech. I, we had too many products. Our company was too large, 100,000 employees, or I don't remember how many. And I was like, oh, my God, I, I will never learn their industry, and I'll never learn to speak all the nuance. The technology was changing so fast. And I said, you know what? I, the one thing I can do is I can speak business. I can, I can speak business problems. And the other thing I learned to do that was so important, and I talk about this in the book, is I could articulate where the competitors fit in the, in the landscape. And I could articulate their business model, our business model, and other business models. And, and there were times I would say, Jess, and, and ready, ready or not, I know you talked about the back of the head. There were times I'd say, I'm not sure there's a fit here. I'm, I'm walking out. I'm not going to bid on this, or I don't think there's a fit. I, I'm going to walk away, and, I, and I'll share with you who I think is the best fit. And sometimes I would name my competitors. I didn't have to do it very often, you know, maybe one out of 25 times, but there were times where I said, I'm, I'm not a fit and, and it won't work. I'd love the business and, and you know, I'd love the commissions, but, but, but I'm more about the integrity. And I would take the heat if I didn't make my numbers and thank God I made my numbers every year, shattered them. But I would take the heat to say, you know what? I, I, I don't want this. I don't need this because it could come back to bite us and damage our brand or hurt future sales. 
But two things I did was I could only speak business. And, and number two, I could I could manage the competitive landscape. I never bashed the competitors. I, I never sometimes never even called them out or, or the, by name. I just said, you know what, let me share with you. And I, I give a great example of this in the book. I, I was in a very heated deal. There were two competitors. We were down to the wire. My sales presentation failed. And I said, you know what, let me just be a buyer. Let me walk you through what's out there, what you're going to see. Here's where we all fit. Here's the pluses and minuses. And, and I remember saying this to the executive board of this bank. I said, first of all, the most important thing is there is no perfect mob. Any, any of our of us has choices. We all have holes. We all have flaws. There's, there's risk. And, and so I will walk you through the, the strengths and weaknesses of, of each of us and share with you. And I'll never forget, I think it was the CFO. He looked at me and he said, you've shared more information and value in the last half hour than we've gotten in the eight hours of presentations we've seen. He said, one of our challenges has been, how do we choose? How do we decide? Because you all have strengths and weaknesses. And, and typically in big contracts, we default to price or we default to brand. And we know that's not the smartest way to do things. And he said, by you laying out where you guys all fit the strengths and weaknesses, you've really helped us understand the risk. You've helped us understand the value. You've helped us understand how to buy. And I said, that, that's, that's the best I've got. If you want to speak tech, I've got techs behind me. I've got techs on the phone. I've got some of the best tech engineers in the world to go into the bits and bytes and the design and layouts and architecture. But at the end of the day, this is a business decision. And, and you've got to understand how to, how to make the business decision, not by technology. You know, I think about this idea. I mean, it reminds me of, do you know the CE book, the CEB book, The Challenger Sale? I do. I love that one for this exact reason of like, show up, don't like show up and ask how you can be helpful. Show up knowing more about their problem than they do and, and come with a point of view to help them realize where they're doing their own business wrong. You know, like... Like this idea of like your new, your new standard should be that leaving the meeting, they should felt like they should feel like they should have paid you for that level of consulting. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like what, a, what an interesting mindset Yeah, to bring into it. Right. So I like that. I, I have a model. I have a, I have a methodology that I've been using inside very large accounts and it, it's more integrated to the enterprise as a system. And, and that's where a lot of the methodologies fall down today. They're, they're triggered by a sales process versus integrated in the demand creation to where in many cases, we don't even, my clients don't even have competitors because they knock them out in the demand creation side. And so you're not now in thrust into that that challenging sale and having to fight it out or take control of the customer conversation. We create the demand on the front end. Therefore, now the, the, the buyer still has to compare, still has to evaluate because that's classic, get three choices. But now if, if you've developed a relationship with the value proposition on the front end, you never have to fight it out in the sales process. You've already won. Well, I, I can't agree with you more. I think about how many sole source contracts I've received from the government and the Department of Defense because of the differentiation up front? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like taking the time to structure, like everybody's trying to be better than the competition. There's yeah. so much more money in being different, you know, different in a valuable way, but yeah. like quit trying to be better, try to be different. Yeah. yeah. And like, you know, both the consulting firm I used to work for, Arbinger, and some of the stuff that my firm has done. You know, it was like we we helped our internal client write a contract for a service that no one in the world but us offered. Yeah. And it's really easy for them to get a sole source on something like that and drop out months of months of non-revenue generating time, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, and so back to your point that I think is so important I want to expand on or unpack is I I, I leverage the enterprise. 
I leverage every part of a client's enterprise to go create that demand. So it's not just on the on the shoulders of the salesperson and 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 trying to find or train that superstar salesperson that could go in and have that special kind of conversation. That, that that's that's almost a rarity. I, I I look at the whole enterprise and say, from operations support and from marketing, from leadership, are all parts of that organization creating the demand to attract the perfect client, so that once you make that attraction, no one else will fit. Now all of a sudden, the game's at a different level, and 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 that's where I play today. I was helping thirty years ago. This is I really hate to say this. Thirty years ago. I was certifying the guys that were training the people to sell billion dollar contracts. And, for EDS and, or for who? For EDS. And, and, and the level of sophistication when you get in those ranks where you're competing at billion dollar levels and your cost of sales is a million dollars and you might have a thousand people working on the sales process, you, you play the game at levels that most people can never dream of or imagine. I, I mean, uh, I, I won't go into the details and share <laughs> trade secrets. But, but that's, that's where I cut my teeth 30 years ago. And so today I've stepped out and said, I'm, 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 I'm big on sales methodology, but it's got to fit into the enterprise. It's got to be holistic and, and be integrated. So it's not, so when you don't put so much pressure on, well, I, I got to give you the statistics. It, this is, this is frightening. 15, 20 years ago, when I was giving speeches, I, I talked about only one in a thousand people in sales can handle all phases of a complex sale. And I, I break them into seven phases. Only one in 1,000 today. Okay, now we fast forward 15, 20 years. Today, only one in 2,500 salespeople can manage all phases of a complex where, sale. Where does that statistic come from? That's my research. I'm working with thousands of companies and, and representing a million employees. Some of my clients have had several thousand salespeople. And, and, and so tracking through those and building these teams and transforming. The other thing that, that I've got that's fascinating, and you come from the consulting world, in my model, it's not project-based. We're on retainer base sometimes for years and years with clients. So we've helped clients go pre-revenue up to tens of millions from didn't have a salesperson, didn't even, couldn't spell marketing to where we built out their whole departments and then done the transformation work and, and where we've gone in or I've gone in holistically as the architect to literally re-architect the whole organization, the models into the enterprise. And, and what, what I've been able to gather over the years that really drove writing the book is I've been in these offices every week for five, seven, 10 years and, and watched the teams develop and been able to test, apply, create, validate models and templates and tools. I have something like 600 modules today. I started with zero. And so the point there is that I'm, I have a level of, of information and access that you can't get from just observation or research or doing projects. Yeah. Well, listen, we're about out of time here. Can you tell us one more customer story of helping them create a demand gen they didn't have in the past? Yeah, I'm trying to think of a-, a or, or just lead, lead generation. One, yeah, more, one you, more client you helped with lead gen. I'll give you the, the best example I got, and I talk about it so much, is that we're, everybody's gone digital. Everybody's done digital activities. And what they don't do is they don't leverage their expertise and they don't leverage the real knowledge of value. And, and, and so one of the things like your audience, what they have to learn to do, there, there is uh, so much business to be earned from the physical events. And, and today, now they're virtual, they're webinars, what, they're, what, they're Zoom calls. The client you're helping with this, what, what industry were they in? The client you're helping with this? Oh, literally every client we have. Every client. But I'm saying, pick, have, let's pick one. Let's go through a real story. Can you pick one? Yeah. So these guys are in the develop services and development space. 
And, and so the work with them is to put on these workshops and, and seminars. And here's what's interesting, not about their product or service, but how to buy the product or service. In, in other words, help buyers understand. So if, if I'm going to go uh, buy some services or I'm going to buy development services. or, or When you say I'm development, about, do you mean like real estate development? What kind of development? No, no technology development. Okay. Yeah. So, Sorry, go ahead. So if I've got a business problem and I want to know how do I solve this? The first problem the buyer has is who do I choose? Who do I go to? Because nine out of 10 development projects and technology fail. They don't mean time, budget, or resources. And, and, and so I tell clients, I work with clients and the clients we have right now in the portfolio is stop pushing your products and services when they first join us, start leading with value, meet the buyer where the buyer is. And, so what did and, that look like practically? Yeah. So the, one of the first things we do on the marketing side is we're going to put together a webinar or a video that, that helps buyers understand how to buy. Here are the 10 things you should be looking for in a development company. That, that's the video you made with these guys that you're talking now, about? That's, a minute, that's in the works right now. That's, that's one that's in process right now is, is how to buy. How, how do you choose an expert in the space? Back to consultants. How do you do that? And, and, and that's what makes that so unique is that's where the that's where the buyer is most challenged. Who do I pick? Who who should I go to? Yeah, we've got a wealth management client right now doing that. With you know, how do you how do you choose a wealth advisor? Well, we're now creating videos and we're now walking through and talking through. Here are the things that wealth advisors won't tell you. Here here's what conflict of interest is with a particular product, and and so it's those things that we're building out that content, not to push products and services, but to help buyers buy. Because in most cases, what's so interesting is buyers are not good at buying. Buyers. Well, and I love that. I love that hook point. Here's what other people in the industry probably won't tell you. Yeah. Do you mean like that's, there's such, there's intrigue in that. There's built in value for me in that. There's, you know, like it's a great hook point to, to stop on, you know, you put that on on social media, somebody's scrolling through their LinkedIn. Yeah. And it's like, it's, there's this intrigue point of like, well, what are, what are those things? You know? Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, we just we were we were just in one of our sessions a while back. We were just talking through what is it that, that wealth advisors won't tell you? How do they what are the games they play? Because they have to make money. So when you hear no commissions or you hear no fees, it's like, well, how do they make their money? Well, well it's kind of sharing the inside secrets. And every industry has this. Every industry has those inside secrets. It's like people selling cars today. Where do they make their money? In the financing. They they the salespeople have become neutered ambassadors. They're not allowed to sell. They're just, their, their job is to just get the person back in the finance department where the wolves come out. I probably just made a lot of people in the car business angry, but, but, you know, most people know that. And, 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 and so if, when you can be transparent and when you can be helpful, and again, like you said, when you put the buyer, your prospect, or just your contact ahead of you and make the world more about them, there's a good chance they're going to come back to you and work with you. And, well, and, and, a, and anybody can say it and we've all been preached that and we've all been yeah. preached that we should listen more. And yet how many of us like, you know, run us like run a, run a, a scoreboard on ourselves of like, huh, zero to 10, what percentage of that conversation was I talking? What percentage were they talking? You know, one of my mentors, who's a great, he's retired FBI counterintelligence officer, right? He was FBI SWAT. His wife got mad at him for getting into many gunfights with MS-13 gangbangers. <laughs> so he switches to counterintel. And, you know, those are the guys out catching spies in America, right? And so if you're going to get a foreign intelligence officer, you're going to get a foreign diplomat to basically become a traitor to their country to try and help keep America safe. And so we can find out where the nukes are, whatever, right? Like this is a, this is a pretty good sale. Like, 
them and their family could get murdered back in their country if, if this get you know what I mean like to me this is like the ultimate sale just as far as i'm concerned right <laughs> and it's interesting like their training regimes are just incredibly intense month long trainings and and stuff right and one of the things that they do is they call it 70/30 listening and they're like they audit themselves did i talk for more than 30% of this conversation and they get taught how to ask open ended questions and the kind of things to get it back to 70/30 of of the prospect talking versus me yeah. you know and we have all been told to death listen listening is so important we have two ears we've been told that to death and yet our practices don't line up with even things we tell people right Jess, one one of my my newest modules i developed just a, a couple of years ago because of that issue right there is taking uh, groups through the difference between talking conversation and dialogue and 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 the group love us. I, I just kind of did it almost on the fly. I was I was working on something. I said, "Gosh, you guys are struggling with this. Let me walk you through the difference." And and I and I took the group through this this talking or presenting. You're making all the noise, <laughs> and 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 you act like you're hearing, but you're not hearing. But then the the other part is now we're having a conversation where we're sharing and learning and all that, which is great. And that's where that's that's probably ninety eight percent of all conversations with salespeople and marketing teams and even executives. That's ninety eight percent of all conversation. But the ultimate conversation level or communications level is dialogue, where you're focused on mutually solving a problem. And it's interesting, we hear our, our very our astute ambassadors talk about we're now having dialogue. They, 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 meaning that they've transitioned from we're in talks or communications, we're now in real dialogue. And, and, and so the problem that you address, the big picture you address is too many managers and leaders expect these things, but they never lead and educate their people on how to do those. Well, things. it's, it's meaningful repetitions. We know telling people to do something doesn't work. And yet you look at like, you know, one of my favorite books, The Talent Code, Daniel Coyler, or any of the deliberate practice 10,000 hour books, you know, Peak by Honors Erickson is probably like the most scientifically sound one. But just like, do you have meaningful repetitions with a feedback loop? You know, like people were, you know, telling people to do stuff we know does not turn into behavior change. Yeah. Meaningful repetitions with a scoreboard is is where habits are built, is where yeah. where we, we gain real skills, right? And, and how many sales teams, they tell people, listen to your, listen to your clients more. Nobody checks if they did. Nobody has any practice sessions ahead of time. You know what I mean? Like, right. We, if you were going to get good at any other skill, a sport, chess, math, technology, it would be meaningful repetitions, meaningful repetitions, checking on your work. Right. And yet how many people in sales are like, oh, well, I, I saw how this guy sold. I went on a few ride alongs. The CEO told me what I should say. It's like a free for all. No. Do you know what I mean? There's no, it's not like a sports team where you go back through tape and go like, tell me what you did well. Tell me what you didn't yeah. do well. You, you know, you've touched on so many challenges that companies are having. And I mean, I'm just having flashes of, oh my God, they're, they're lost in the, the difference between management and leadership. They don't really understand true business problem solving. They, they don't understand levels of communications. I mean, you've just touched on so many things. And at the end of the day, it, it's leadership or lack of leadership and, 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 and being responsible. What I found and what we do in our programs is we we actually force deliverables. And 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 so like if you come back from a sales call, I, I don't want to hear it went great. I want you to be able to articulate and frame the business problem they're trying to solve and why they can't solve it. That that that's a different dialogue, a different conversation than oh, the meeting went great, it went 15 extra minutes, or the classic goal of sales, I got enough information to create a proposal. Ugh. Ah. 
Well, good. I hope you get salesperson of the year, but I hope you don't make any money because at the end of the day, your greatest value is solving those problems, but you have to understand and listen and identify them and frame them properly. So yeah, you just touched on so many things that I'm trying to fix. I'm trying to correct. The big one though I'm trying to correct right now is companies, leaders, they're, they're, they're really great at starting, running and growing businesses, but they don't really understand how to create wealth inside their business. And, and wealth is how you scale those sales, revenue and profits using your existing resources or less. And, 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 and there's so many great challenges to solve, Jess, and I want to I want to help solve all of them. But that's the one right now. If, if, if I can help your audience understand that premise and, and, and get that and get off the path of growth and get on the roadmap of creating wealth, then, then so many other things will change because they're going to have the time and the money to invest in their people and themselves to, to be able to do the right things that you just talked about and how they're doing the wrong things today. I love it. Well, listen, if people want to connect with you, they want to get a hold of the book, what what are the best places? Yeah, the book Entrepreneur to Millionaire and it's on Amazon, it's Barnes and Noble, you can do through Porchlight Books, you can get uh, and I really recommend that you have the whole company engaged in this. One of the challenges I've had recently or over the last few years is the CEO or the entrepreneurs all engaged in on this roadmap but their employees aren't. And, and so we get the passive aggressive, you, especially with remote today, everybody should be connected on this roadmap because it's, it's a holistic enterprise effort. And then you connect directly with me at in, info at revenuegrowthcompany.com. And at revenuegrowthcompany.com, there's videos and resources. I, I think maybe that's where you saw some of mine. We're getting a lot of content up now. For, for two decades, I was behind the scenes in the engine, quiet back there, fixing things creating wealth, making people millionaires and multimillionaires. Now I've got the book out. Now I'm out, out back in the speaking circuit and sharing with a lot of people to help them in these tough times. Well, this is great. Thanks. Thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. I, I love that. I really enjoyed the conversation and dialogue. You bet. <laughs> Bye everyone.